Blog Talk Radio. Let me tell you about something new. A new show called G's Power. G's Power. Real talk for real saints. Are you ready? And it's for real. Welcome to G's Power Hour live every weekday at 11.30 a.m. on Never Had It So Good Entertainment Network. Your host, G, will bring you informative and entertaining guests and a variety of topics in a way that you can absorb and enjoy. Listen in weekdays and call in at 516-387-1944. We love interaction. All shows can be downloaded if you miss one or found on iTunes the next day. G's Power Hour is powered by Never Had It So Good Sports Media Network. Brothers and sisters, kings and queens, angels and saints, ladies and gentlemen, P-D-I-F. I am so happy. Oh, my gosh, I can't begin to tell you. Anyway, welcome back. And to those of you who are new, welcome to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. It's going to be a great day because we have two of our favorite guests back on the show. And we are still talking a couple of things. We're talking back to school, and we're talking um, uh, Black Business Month. Yes, it is still. And so we're going to talk back to school from the perspective of two attorneys who have stories to share about their time in school, also about their time raising their kids, uh, you know, preparing them for school and, and, you know, all that type of stuff. And we're going to talk a little bit about um, being a black business owner. So we are welcoming back the warrior princess, Nadine Brown, and we're welcoming back my brother, Kevin Anderson, civil rights attorney with Anderson and Welch. Good morning to both of you. How you doing? Good morning. Doing well. Thank you. Good Welcome morning. Back. I'm doing well. Wonderful. Thank you. Welcome back. So, so once upon a time, you both were in school because you never would have been lawyers if you hadn't. So uh, talk about your experiences in the um, elementary phase of your education, things that uh, you took with you, I guess, as you were um, moving through the years and things that you wish you had or had not done. Um, Normally I would start with the ladies, but I am going to start with Kevin this time because we had your mama on and she talked about you uh, and you you have some things to share. Uh, So tell us about it. All right, well, I'll I'll start kind of uh, in the middle with uh, attending undergrad. I won't go through, you know, when I was uh, a young young fella getting ready to uh, launch into uh, manhood. So uh, I did not immediately go to school. Uh, I went into the Air Force. And I went into the Air Force uh, because I just, uh, I had a couple things on my mind. One of them was making money immediately. And another thing that I had on my mind was getting married. Uh, So I knew school was important and I I just couldn't neglect uh, an education. But at the same time, I wanted to make a few dollars and I wanted to get married. And so the Air Force seemed to be the way to do that. Uh, I enlisted in the Air Force and the Air Force has and had the most progressive educational uh, platform uh, I think of all the armed services because the Air Force has their own college, uh, the Community College of the Air Force. And on top of that, 
we tend to be stationed in cities because uh, we're generally in urban areas that will afford the aircraft the ability to come and go and uh, to uh, do some other things that are mission essential. So we're always in a place where there is a university or a college. Therefore, as, a, uh, as an airman, I was able to uh, attend school uh, off-duty, uh, and uh, I was able to also attend the community college of the Air Force. So uh, that is the route I took, and it worked for me because I needed it. Uh, as, as you pointed out and my mother so aptly stated, you know, I was a hellion, and I needed uh, to be uh, put in check. And the Air Force was that uh, device in my life that allowed me to see what would happen if I got out of line. And it also gave me the exposure to positive role models. And at the same time, I was able to uh, go to school. And uh, I, I paid for it, uh, some of it myself, some of it the Air Force uh, paid for. Uh, but um, everything was positive. So I was able to, to, to move uh, forward with that start that's the beginning and I'll, I'll tender time over to Nadine to give us uh, to give us her starting point so Nadine. so so I guess um having been an immigrant growing up in South Florida I was always motivated um, both by my my parents my culture and my immediate setting because it was kind of in the hood um, to always stay focused on education because that was my ticket out. I was um, very close to the projects, so to speak. There were a lot of tenement housing where I grew up in, in Broward. Um, and so, you know, predominantly black neighborhood and um, being bused to white schools, um, surrounded by a lot of high-achieving uh, individuals, um, where I was attending both elementary and middle school. I was fortunate to go to somewhat of a magnet school and, and always focused on higher education because that's what they pushed. And and seeing the environment around me, there were a lot of drug dealers and gangbangers and things like that. Um, I know I didn't want that life for myself, so I you know, pushed hard in my books and got scholarships, um, one of which was an ROTC scholarship to University of Miami. However, I declined it. Um, going into the Air Force, so I'm, I have you know much respect for uh, my colleague on the line, but I couldn't do the military. It was kind of like a, a you know officer training program, and I thought it would be wonderful. And to get a full ride to Miami, who wouldn't want that? Um, and that was a part of my aspiration. However, that component um, of having to take up arms, not being a conscientious objector, but having a faith walk that said that I could not you know kill my fellow men even. Uh, if directed to do so in in the line of of the you know the the, the oath that I took um, compelled me to kind of decline that scholarship and so instead I went to the University of Florida um, not on a full ride with loans and uh, kind of partial scholarship and just decided that I would do what I needed to do to make it and it was trying to be an advocate for other people like myself with similar background, either from the projects, um, which is what compelled me to go into um, like public interest law when I started. Um, but really starting out from looking at my environment, knowing that I wanted more for myself, 
almost being God-inspired to say, this is the journey that I'm going to take. And even though I could have gotten a full ride at University of Miami, decided to take an alternative route um, and go to a you know land-grant university away from home uh, in a dormitory uh, with no air conditioning in Florida, and then just you know keep going as far and as fast as I could um, with a lot of book knowledge, but also world experience. So uh, I mean that's kind of like where I've started and kind of a, the beginning of my journey. So for both of you, it seems that, and I wish we could get other um, young people to recognize this, that education, school, it was a path to something better, um, a, a way out of, you know, not so uh, positive circumstances, you know, and that can be that for, for every child that decides to apply themselves, uh, you know. Uh, but let me ask you this. What were in inside the classroom, inside the school, and I'm going to start with you, Nadine, what did you find to be the most challenging thing? A lot of it for me was cultural adaptation. I came as an immigrant, um, you know, in elementary school. I'd already completed what we consider kind of like basic school, which is, you know, kindergarten and first grade, and I got kind of like – sent back to first grade when I came here. So the biggest challenge was like the cultural adjustment, language learning, um, even though I'm a native English speaker and I come from a country where, you know, we were taught in English, um, but just having to adapt to my surroundings and, you know, the students that were here and also having to be bused um, to predominantly white neighborhoods, white schools, um, which has its advantages and disadvantages, but it was just the the adaptation to a, a new surrounding, people, you know, treating me differently because they knew I was from the islands and I spoke with an accent at that time, um, and just trying to understand the expectations um, of me from the, the the teachers as well as, you know, my peers. You know, I grew up in an era where it was, you're stigmatized or you're labeled. If you're too much of a bookworm, you're trying to be white. Um, if you're not enough of a bookworm, then, you know, you're not the smartest person and you're going to do re- a lot of remedial education. And so I was kind of in between and having to find my way. That was the biggest challenge for me is just the cultural um, variance that I was exposed to and, and still trying to achieve and succeed and understand what the hell they're trying to get me to do with A's and B's and getting grades and taking tests and, um, you know, the, the I guess the testing is also and was a challenge and is also a challenge for my children now, um, but that was the biggest classroom adjustment is the, the testing and the expectations that the, the teachers had. Yeah, I, I, I mean... Just to add the immigration component to the part that you're talking about in terms of if you're smart, then you're you're like trying to be white, and if you know, and you mm-hmm. just I, I had to deal with a lot of that myself coming um, because I have through kind of midway of my my education, I transferred from Catholic school and went into public school, and so having that different experience in, the, in my early years. Uh, made me like a target in my later years and just have having to uh, learn those socialization skills. And I think that was one of the reasons my parents did that because they're like, okay, we need to get her into the real world. Um, mm-hmm. So, 
Kevin, tell yes. me, tell me, challenges inside in school. The challenge for me was staying there. I didn't want to be in school. Um, I detested the environment because I felt like uh, they were a hindrance to me getting out and doing my thing. But I was young, and I could not do my thing because I didn't have money, and I didn't have the ability to be mobile. I was just a boy. And um, I thought that I knew what was going on and that I was ready to get it going. And, uh, you know, I grew up in, the, in what's called the DMV, the uh, District of Columbia, Maryland, Virginia area. So, um, you know, black people have it going on over there, so to speak. They're working. Uh, they are in, in government. They are property owners. Uh, everyone thinks that they're smarter than the next black guy. And uh, so th- th- there is racial tension, don't get me wrong. At the same time, it's, it's a little different than in some other areas in the country. So, so the racism wasn't the thing that I was dealing with. It was just getting out and, and doing what I thought Kevin Anderson needed to be doing then and there. Um, I hated math, couldn't stand it, couldn't understand why on earth math was important for me to, to, to learn in order to get out of school. Uh, history, I detested. Learning about people who didn't look like me, like years and years and years ago, like I just couldn't connect to like today or, or back then. I, I, I couldn't understand why on earth I would sit in a class and, and learn all of these uh, history lessons that probably uh, had no application for me at that time or for where I was going. Uh, so I, it just... I just couldn't wait to leave. You know, I, I've always been a, been a leader. I've always been a talker. I've always been able to, to outmaneuver in my mind. So school was just like kind of like, I don't know, dress rehearsal, so to speak. That was kind of a waste for me. But um, that, so for me, the, I guess the impediment was in my mind. Nothing around me caused me a problem except me. It came from inside. So I was just dealing with my own little boogers and, and, and demons that, you know, I just needed to exercise in order to, to get out of school to, to do what I thought was important. We're going to take a quick break. We are here with Kevin Anderson and Nadine Brown, attorneys at law. Um, and, uh, no, not together. <laughs> uh, Nadine's here in uh, the Winter Springs area, and, and Kevin is down in West Palm Beach. Uh, you've heard them both on, on the show talking about a variety of subjects, and we're talking about back to school. When we come back, though, we're going to talk a little bit about being parents in this era and want to ask you both how is it different with your kids, you know, having gone, gone to school, uh, their experience versus yours. So we're going to talk a little bit about that when we come back. The number, if you have questions or comments, is 516-387-1944. This is G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment, and we will be right back. Does it appear the long arm of the law is working against you instead of for you? Whom do you call when the boys in blue are pursuing you? When the wrong person behind bars may end up being you? With over 40 years combined legal expertise, Anderson and Welch bring to bear a smart, sound, sensible defense of those caught in what may be the unrelenting grip of the legal system. 
turn to Anderson and Welch first to get ahead of trouble, not fall into it, by calling 561-832-3386. That's 561-832-3386. That's Anderson and Welch Law Firm online at andersonandwelch.com. Good morning. Welcome back to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. We are talking to a couple of our favorite attorneys about their time in school, but we also want to talk about raising kids uh, in you know in their school experience versus uh, their kids' experience. So we want to talk with Nadine Brown first. What did you notice about your kids being in school and how was it different from your experience? So the the most glaring um, difference or challenge is, you know, the safety of um, the kids currently. I mean, you know, I, I was bused to school, so we have a, a zone school, which is, is good for where my kids attend. But as a parent, and I know that as a student, um, safety concerns are kind of a priority um, at least from my perspective and, you know, my, my kids, it's the, you know, code red and code yellow drills for um, the active shooters. And then it's, you know, currently in the, the age of COVID and, and whatnot, and I have a, also a child that's a special needs, so there are, you know, safety concerns that I have for him. Um, but I know for them, you know, the priority is, you know, are they safe when they're at school? And then can they do the work at school? Because some of it, for my middle schooler, is intense. I have one that's in eighth grade and, and my other is in fifth grade. Um, so the challenge is, you know, keeping up with the work. Um, and then are they safe in the environment where they're supposed to be learning? And what ages are your children, if you don't mind? M- mine is uh, the fifth grader is 10 and the eighth grader is 13 going on 14. Okay, all right, Kevin. Yours are kind of up and out, right? My children know? are out. My children are out. I have a 37-year-old, a 36-year-old, and a 26-year-old, so they've been out. Um, <clears throat> we didn't deal with uh, during during my time or their time. Uh, COVID, obviously, my time, but uh, in in their time, COVID wasn't around, and there was no active shooter. Uh, uh, issues that uh, today are uh, in the news. What we the kids were dealing with were drugs. Uh, drugs on on school campuses uh, were rampant. Uh, it wasn't uh, fentanyl. Uh, it was pot, basically smoking pot uh, and pills. So uh, that was something that we had to educate the uh, the girls about and my son, so that you know they would at least be aware of what was going on. But, you know, I had to, to be extra vigilant to ensure that even though the awareness was there, that they didn't partake uh, in, uh, in any substance abuse um, or substance usage, I'll, I'll say. So that was primarily the main focus. Um, and we got through that. And, you know, the D.A.R.E. programs were very popular when, the, when they were on campus. And, uh, you know, one of the uh, administrations, the presidential administrations, focused a lot on just say no. That was a big deal. So, so, I, think, so I think it was the, the drug issue. That was the, the paramount uh, danger when uh, they were in school. 
I want to know something else, though. Did you ever get what you gave with any of your kids? You know what I mean, right? Yeah, I do. I do. I know what you mean. And and I didn't. Uh, I think, you know, the dynamic was different. So my mom and, and I, we were in the home together, as she previously told you. It was it was uh, the two of us in, 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 uh, in, a, in a real urban area, as opposed to our children. They were raised, well, my children, they were, they were raised in, you know, with my wife and I. So we, we had a, a, a two-parent dynamic as opposed to, mm-hmm. you know, the dynamic that I experienced with just my mom and I. And my mom mm-hmm. uh, worked all the time. She was uh, an administrator at, at Howard University in, in, uh, in D.C. So I was doing my thing, man. I was kind of latchkey, and, you know, I was running around, you know, when you saw me, you saw me. But, you know, with, with my kids, there was always someone at the home. There, you know, I was mm. there, you know, at, at some point, you know, I wasn't there like all day, but at some point I showed up every day. And, you know, mm-hmm. so there was oversight and uh, there was also uh, and a, the ability to, to track what was happening on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, there wasn't, you know, there, there wasn't that, that fella who, who I was getting out of control for a couple of weeks and then eventually, you know, being reined in. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then, uh, you know, as a dad, you know, dads do things differently than moms. At least this dad did. And if I saw something that was uh, that needed to be checked, uh, I was checking it. You know, I, it wasn't going to happen like tomorrow or later. And if I had to get you up at two in the morning, like it's time to get up, let's talk. But uh, you know, they, they, my kids were respectful. I was disrespectful, uh, so they never gave me a reason to to really like put the hammer down for real. Um, I gave my parent, my mom, a reason to kill me, you know, and uh, <laughs> she didn't. All right, so that's a big difference there. I was out of control, but, um, you know, my kids weren't. So um, there's a big, big difference. So, no, I, I didn't actually get what I gave. No, I didn't. Do you see that coming down the line with any grandkids? I hope not. Uh, okay. You know, I have uh, – I've got a few, and so far – everybody's everybody's doing their thing, you know, everybody's in order. And I, I hope not. I, I hope not. <laughs> okay. Good. 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 I want to ask you both, and I'm going to go back to you, Nadine, um, if you had something that you wanted to pass along to not just your kids, but, you know, kids in general, um, you know, who are diving into the school year with all of the challenges, and especially now we, we talk about safety almost as much as the educational component, which is kind of sad but necessary. Uh, but what would you tell them? And especially um, from your perspective, perspective as an immigrant, what would you tell immigrant kids? I would tell all kids it's okay to be an overachiever if, you know, that's your thing. If it's you're an average student, that's okay, too. Just do the best that you can, considering, um, you know, children have a lot to deal with now, and they're talking about, you know, mental health issues, which is a part of the, the safety component. Um, but it's just to do the best that you can and always ask for help if you need help. And even if you don't think you need help, it's okay to seek um, assistance and guidance, whether it's from a counselor at school, your teacher's, um, or your parents, if they're available and they're there. Um, to your earlier point, 
you know, I was a model student. I was an overachiever. I was a bookworm, and I see that manifesting in my, you know, 13-year-old child and almost to a little intense. Um, so I've kind of like um, – made a a hard road for her to follow, but I told her, as I would tell any student, is, you know, make it your own. You're your own separate person. And as the Bible says, you know, you're going to run the race that is set before you, not my race, not your grandparents' race, um, but your own race. So you have to carve out your niche and your identity and the kind of student that you want to be um, in this world and whatever academic setting that you're in. There are, you know, students that are in magnet schools. There are students that are in low-performing schools. There are students in, you know, A-plus schools, and it really doesn't matter what school you're in um, as long as you give it the best and you make the most of what you've, you have around and available to you. Um, and when you have an opportunity to make a different path or to, to go a step further, then do that and don't let anything or anyone hold you back. Um, so that's my best advice that I would give any student, immigrant students in particular. You know, it, it is challenging that some people may be facing Um, you know, deportation or other stressors that their parents are experiencing or their language barriers or transportation barriers, and it's just do the best that you can with what you've been given because a lot of times children don't have a choice. Um, So it's just to to just keep going and, and, you know, do the best and ask for help definitely when you need it or if you think you need it. Can I put a plug in for the regular guy? Um, well, you know, yeah, my, I was going to call on you. Go ahead. <laughs> all right. So I was I was not the overachiever, um, and you know I was just a regular guy um, mm-hmm. who was in a in an environment where I think people expected me to 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 be that that overachiever in one respect. And, you know, and I told you my mom worked at Howard University, so I could have gone right. to Howard for for free. All right, well tuition free. And I chose not to take the Navy route, and then I enlisted in the Air Force because mm-hmm. I just didn't want to deal with, uh, you know, the college environment when I had other things that were competing, you know, with my uh, for my interests. But, you know, I, you know, I I want the regular guy, the guy who's making C's, the guy who, you know, has distractions to to or the woman to feel like they still can go on later and uh, get the same things that Nadine and I have achieved because they're doable. You know, not everybody is as mature or everyone, you know, doesn't have the, the interest at certain points that everyone else does. And But it doesn't mean mm-hmm. that in time and in your own right that you can be successful. So, um, you know, I, I just – and I know that people get discouraged and sometimes people don't even get the resources that, you know, the overachievers get because they're not overachieving at that moment. And, you know, but it's there. They're a diamond in the rough. And, and it just takes time for that person to find that, that place in their world where they're going to explode and they're going to just be this, like, this, this great, you know, thing to, to admire. Um, so I, I wanted to put that out because, I mean, people really thought that there were going to be some – not not good things happening for me, but um, some people did. Mm-hmm. Others, others always liked me. You know, I was the class president, you know, from the ninth grade through the 11th grade, but a horrible student. But people listened to me. People believed in me. I had other traits. I believed in myself. And I was able to, on other air, and on other, uh, on another axis, move on, you know. So, like, you can't count people out because the, 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 
the grades aren't there, you know, or you're not doing what everybody else is doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm going to go to break early, and when we come back, see, one of the things that's cool about my two guests today on G's Power Hour is they both have businesses with their names on them. How cool is that? We're talking Black Business Month when we come back. We are here with uh, the warrior princess Nadine Brown and civil rights attorney Kevin Anderson. This is G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment, and we will be right back. Having a wedding, reception, family reunion, planning a banquet, or some other fundraising event. Need to share your knowledge through a workshop or seminar? Or it's a difficult time and you need to plan a wake or repast? Let us help. At our gatherings, let us reduce the stress and make the occasion memorable, treasured. Call our gatherings at 407-968-9387 or email ourgatherings at yahoo.com. Let us help plan your special event. Over the past 60 years, Dove Beauty Bar's superior formula has remained unchanged. But when it comes to beauty, everything changed. Together, we redefined beauty. We said no to stereotypes and yes to every type. We let go of judgments and embraced what makes us unique. We're proud to have been there with you, caring for you every step of the way. Here's to the next 60 years. Good afternoon, almost. Welcome back to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us on this beautiful Friday afternoon. Um, we are talking, well, we were talking back to school, and we talked about the, the different journeys that um, Nadine Brown and Kevin Anderson took. They both are attorneys, and they're back with us. You've heard them both on various occasions on the show. So uh, one of the cool things is that they are both black business owners, and this is Black Business Month. And I want to talk I'm going to go first to you, Nadine, and, and tell me how you uh, made the journey to beca- having your own business, and when did you make, I guess, the decision to have your own business? So as you well know that I met you at Catholic Charities when I worked there as their managing attorney um, back in 1999 and uh, was very Nadine, happy you in that. have to give a year. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been a minute. Um, it's been a minute. <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's been a minute. Uh, so, you know, I love that job, but it was also, you know, one of those positions where there was not an opportunity for upward mobility. It was at the time, um, you know, you go out and find additional work if you wanted to move on or move up. Uh, and I decided that I would take a leap of faith and go out on my own as, you know, the benefit of being an attorney is that you can hang your shingle. You don't have to work in the public sector necessarily, um, you know, as a civil servant with a government entity or a, a not-for-profit um, perpetually or go into private practice in a firm and, and have the whole billing cycle and intense pressure. And I decided, well, I could, you know, be my own boss and, and I just took that leap of faith because I just felt that I could. Um, and, you know, at that time, it's what harm could it do other than you either fall flat on your face, you sink or swim. Um, and one of the things that law school does uh, teach you is trial by fire. You you learn as you go and how adept or um, 
versatile you are at pivoting in difficult situations is how successful you will be as an attorney. And I decided that I would just, you know, leave my comfortable job with benefits uh, and take that leap of faith and did all that I thought I needed to do to research, you know, about opening a corporation and getting an accountant and doing the finances. I don't have a financial background or, you know, finance degree, but you learn as you go and then you, you know, for me it was um, guidance from the Holy Spirit and, and guidance from uh, I don't want to be broke, um, so I'm going to do what I need to do to hustle and, you know, get clients and um, charge a reasonable fee and also learn your, your craft, which is your, your core professional skills, um, and maintain all of that and decided that I would just go and I've been going ever since. So, and, I, and I put that date out there because it's it's been a journey um, since 2002 when I decided to make that solo walk um, and do not regret one moment of it. Um, the ups and downs, 2008 financial crash in between um, marriage and divorce and everything else, um, being a single parent um, you know, provider now, I wouldn't change it for the world. Cool. Glad to hear it. And I, and I can appreciate and enjoy the positive energy that you bring with telling that story. Kevin, talk about your journey. My journey, as I stated, began with the Air Force, but uh, it, it wasn't long into the enlistment that I began to uh, find out that the Air Force was something that I could take things from as opposed to, uh, like, just kind of staying there for years and years and years and letting them take things from me. So the Air Force had what's known as a bootstrap program, which allows a person to, uh, if you're selected, you can just leave active duty and you'll get your regular pay, and but you have to pay for your education. So I, I thought that was wonderful. You know, I didn't have a problem back then of leaving active duty and, and, and paying uh, a college to uh, to attend. Um, it, and uh, so that's what I did. I left uh, the the active component of of the service. And I, uh, I selected Florida State. Of, of all the of the places I could have gone, Florida State University had probably the number three criminology and criminalistics program in the country. So I picked it, and that's uh, where where I, I went to. Um, then uh, I wound up going to the Gulf War, and uh, when I came back, uh, I was uh, allowed to uh, leave active duty early uh, to go to law school, uh, and I, I did that. But uh, for me. Being in that position where I was able to uh, see that my hard work would eventually allow me mobility, uh, that was kind of the first push that I had to uh, move in the direction of, of a private practice, but not just outpatients. I knew that I needed the technique. I knew that I needed uh, the, uh, the ability to build some capital before I went into private practice after I graduated from law school. Um, so I went to public defender offices. Now, I've always, always uh, been uh, a, a voice for the underdog, and I've always, always understood that uh, in that environment, uh, for the most part, there would be people who were brown and black uh, who would need a guy like me uh, to speak up for them. Now, some of those people, uh, granted, are in the position because of uh, their own indiscretions. And then some people, I think, just kind of get caught up in that system and if they didn't look like we looked, they probably wouldn't need a guy like me. But nonetheless, I went to uh, Miami uh, at their public defender office for a little while, and then I came to uh, 
West Palm Beach uh, with the Palm Beach County uh, Public Defender's Office. And uh, I, I was there in those places long enough to get the technique. And then I felt confident enough uh, to open up my own practice uh, uh, over 25 years ago uh, and um, was uh, embraced by the private community, uh, both white and black. Uh, I was embraced petitioners who uh, were able to refer cases to me. Um, and uh, I was um, able to learn how to uh, build capital and also to run an office um, so that the office wouldn't fold. Um, you know, so many times you call a lawyer's office and you're going to an answer machine. You know, I tested that. I wanted you to call my office and you needed to hear a live voice. So many times, you know, you will pay a lawyer and you, you're not getting the communication that you need and that I think is required by the bar standards. I didn't want that to happen. And I also didn't want my practice to be one of these practices where if you came to me, you didn't know what you were getting. So, you know, getting my name out there and being able to um, show people that I could walk the walk and talk the talk because of my performance and not because of what I say was important to me. So, um, you know, I've been here in this community uh, ever since. I've never, I've never left West Palm Beach as my home base. And, you know, since then we've opened up an office in Atlanta and we often opened up our last office in Jacksonville and we intend to do another office. Um, so um, my, my journey has a, a couple of, couple of stops here and there, a couple of curves, you know, but nothing that's been negative at all. Everything, everything's been positive. Uh-huh. Okay. I'm, I'm hearing this, Kevin. I, I still need to ask you, though, was, yeah. there any, was there not any point during your journey to being your own boss that you uh, didn't face discrimination of some form? Okay, thank you. Well, why are you, uh, you thinking, Nadine? What about <laughs> while we were thinking? No, I, but go ahead. I, yeah, there, there was a there was a, a point uh, when I was in law school where um, I was on a, on, a, on a trial team, and um, one of uh, one of our professors um, had um, taken away uh, my ability to uh, contribute to the written. Um, argument, and we call it a brief. And he wanted everything that I wrote to be filtered through um, another person on, on the law, on the on the on the moot court team. And I thought that that was based solely on racism, and that bothered me. But it also empowered me because, of course, that did not happen. I saw what the move was, and I, I just got stronger. Um, and as a practitioner. Um, you know, when you say my boss, you know, lawyers are different. We don't have like a, a – well, if you're in a law firm, a big law firm, I imagine you would have a boss. You know, but I, I haven't had someone that powerful over me that would, would even try it. Now, in a courtroom, I'll tell you this. Sometimes I'll have a judge who, who will say this to me. Well, counselor, what you're really saying is – and then I'll stop them. And I'll say, no, what I said was um, – I'm not trying to say anything. What I said was this. Um, and to some degree, uh, they may not do that to their white counterparts. Um, I've had a, a, a judge before correct me, you know, when I refer to myself as a black man or, or I refer to a person as a black American, and they'll go, you mean African-American? And I'll say, no, I said black American. And as a black man, you know, I will, like, put people in check. So I, I, don't, I don't know that the racism in my life is uh, something that, you know, I can 
say has, has been an impediment or been so prevalent that other people might be able to, to point to. Nadine, any encounters so, yes. that you recall? <laughs> okay. Yes, um, mine started in, in, in law school. Um, I Like I said, I went to the University of Florida, and I went all the way through, um, and it was my final writing thesis. Um, this is where it started, and I'm going to use the word trauma because I was traumatized by the experience. It was my final writing assignment um, before graduation, and I had completed my paper, and I uh, chose... Um, probably arrogantly and, you know, foolhardily uh, an issue that is very controversial is reverse race, racism and um, was the first to finish. I was the first and only female in this 10-person uh, uh, seminar with uh, white, you know, uh, peers, and the teacher had marched uh, with the MLK. Um, he was telling me about his days in um, Selma, and he, you know, just gave me an F for my paper, even though I was the first to complete it. Long story short, I had to go all the way up to the provost because he didn't just he just didn't like my argument that it was really about reparations and what they needed to do. Um, it was a sound argument. They had to get the dean involved, um, the provost, and the president of the University of Florida because I was just so despondent I was ready to sue um, because he just would not approve. Um, you know, my paper because he didn't like the content, not anything else, you know, that met all the requirements that he would have passed it as satisfactory. And then it was just satisfactory or unsatisfactory, and he just gave me an unsatisfactory and said that he would flunk me. Um, I had to have some interventions, and they had a liberal, white, uh, lesbian teacher um, review the paper and said that it was satisfactory because it had met all the requirements needed for graduation and for my honors thesis and then they would graduate me, and it was just an issue of, you know, I guess latent racism, overt, you know, covert, whatever his implicit bias was. Um, and I was discouraged by some of the faculty members who said, just change the, the content, change your argument, change this, change that. Why are you arguing reparations? Why are you, you know, arguing against reverse racism? And I was just, you know, adamant that on principle, if it's about my legal argument, that's one thing. If it's about, you know, the, the core principles or beliefs of my idea, then it's, you know, something completely different. Um, and it was. It, it was blatant racism. I was very traumatized by the experience. You know, nevertheless, I did graduate. Um, I'm a practicing attorney, and, have, and I'm still practicing, and I've had encounters since. Um, both as a woman in the courtroom in trial, people address me by my first name, meaning opposing counsel, as opposed to Attorney Brown, which I find extremely offensive because, you know, when you're in trial, it's attorney so-and-so or counselor, um, but they, you know, directly refer to me as Nadine, which is, in my opinion, very inappropriate. Um, and I've had a judge also in trial tell me that I was a bad lawyer. He didn't understand why I was you know, in front of him arguing my position and um, that if I wanted to, I could appeal him to the 5th DCA, which I did, uh, and reversed him. Um, but it was just so blatant and glaring, both sexism and racism, because the one who I appealed 
also said, oh, I see that you're a graduate of the University of Florida, so you should have, have had the same training that I did, and they didn't tell you that your argument is unsound. And I was like, well, if it's unsound, then why did the fifth DCA reverse me and send me right back to the same courtroom to tell you that you were wrong? But those are the, the traumatic experiences that I've had, but I'm not phased or undaunted because that's just the, the process and the system. And if you have gone to law school or even had – you know, criminal justice background, you know the history of how the law came to be. We come from a common law um, philosophy, and, and, you know, we get reversed, and, and when we learn new ways of thinking or new ways of doing things, we do them, um, or we, you know, revert back to the ignorant ways um, because we can't see a different uh, uh, perspective, you know, Currently, with Supreme Court or any kind of courts that you're going through, it's just a back and forth. Um, but, you know, those have been my experience, and, and that's just kind of the nature of the environment and the arena that we're in. But you keep fighting, and you know that if you have a sound legal argument uh, and you, you know, have the support of either testimony or, or evidence, then you should prevail. You don't always, but that's the nature of why you keep doing it um, you know, baby steps at a time before we make uh, incredible uh, strides into, you know, tomorrow progress. So what did you got to raise a little hell you... though, man. I'm sorry? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I said, I think, I think you got you to raise a little hell with it, man. You know, you got to come with it because, you know, that everything that you said is, is supposed to go down like that. But, like, unless you put it out there and they know that you're not having it, unless it goes down the way it's supposed to go I'm, down, I'm, they're going to try not, you every I'm time. Not, every time. I'm not phased. Like, that judge who said that I was a bad lawyer, you know, and he's like, you want to change the law? And I'm like, well, isn't that why we're here? I said, well, I thank you for your endorsement for, you know, higher office. So I just, you know, kind of twisted it and turned it around, and he was kind of shocked. I was like, yeah, I will take that as an endorsement if you want me to run for the legislature. Um, but it is what it is, <laughs> but I'm not moved. So let me ask you, Nadine, before we go to break, which have you encountered more, racism or sexism? I, I can't really necessarily tease it apart. I would say it comes part and parcel because I'm a, you know, woman of color. Um, so mm -hmm. I, it's kind of 50%, you know, gender bias and 50% racial bias, and you can't always tell which is which, but I know that it's mm -hmm. a bias that is against me um, or people like me, but it, it's still there. Okay. But it's, it's not the world that defines you. It's how you define you, and, and if I'm made in the likeness and image of Almighty God, then it's what he says, not what man says. Amen to that. I wish so many more people would understand that. So we're going to take our final break. When we come back, I'm just going to ask each of you to give me anywhere from two to five minutes uh, in terms of what's going on in, in your legal world, uh, because you both practice in, in different arenas. So we're going to talk about that when we come back. Uh, we're here with attorneys Nadine Brown and Kevin Anderson. This is G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment, and we will be right back. So maybe we'll be right back right now. So we're going to be we're going to be talking. <laughs> we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on. I'm going to start first with you, Nadine. Um, any updates in terms of what you're dealing with with regards to immigration issues and, and things that you've observed recently? Well, the same old, same old. There's still a lot of delays and um, you know rewriting of. Uh, legislation and, and um, policies um, 
you know, people are still trying to re renew their DACA applications. Um, that's the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals um, or the DREAMers. Uh, there's still Afghan individuals waiting to come in, the Ukrainians as well, um, to get humanitarian parole and, and you know, possibly asylum on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, so we've still had a you know, flood of applications for people who are applying for work authorizations. Um, there's been such a significant delay that um, it has you know, interrupted a, a lot of um, uh, businesses around, so the policies now are to extend work authorization from one year to two uh, because the wait time has been roughly about 18 months. Um, we've reached kind of like the H-1B cap on applications for skilled workers and, um, you know, all other, you know, systems in immigration are kind of pretty much the same as far as uh, requirements in, in filings. None of the filing fees have changed. And uh, consult a good, you know, attorney if you um, think that your case uh, is going to be extraordinary or you have some fact patterns that indicate either you arrived without um, inspection, um, you're a border crosser or you've been detained or even just, you know, to dot your I's and cross your T's so that nothing goes awry because the immigration officials, you know, um, sometimes mean well, but they make mistakes too and you have to kind of follow the regulations and policies to make sure that you have a successful application process and get the benefits that you've applied for. Kevin, what's going on in your world? And, uh, well, <laughs> there's been a few things recently. I think I passed along some, some articles to you, but you've got your own stuff going on, so give us a, some, an update. Sure, that's a show in and of itself. Uh, mm -hmm. The Department of Justice, they actually have a, a policy uh, that uh, kind of went under the radar. And it's uh, a new policy that requires police officers to stop other officers from using excessive force. And uh, this policy um, has been promulgated and, and reduced uh, to writing, which imposes an, an affirmative duty to intervene and to stop other officers from engaging in this force and also to render medical aid. You know, that, that last little section is interesting because mm. the, the, we, we have not had a good Samaritan provision in the statutes uh, for a very long time. And in some states don't uh, recognize that affirmative duty to render aid. But the Department of Justice has created this affirmative duty uh, for uh, officers within the purview of the federal system to do that. Uh, so, and of course, once again, that just went totally like under the radar. I don't believe anyone has even even discussed that in the, in the media. At least I haven't heard it. Mm -mm. Uh, I haven't heard anything. It's there. Uh, in addition, uh, the well, isn't that a part of their tenant to protect and serve? Well, yes, to protect and serve, but not to treat uh, when it comes to, like, people who have been injured. They may call 911 or, you know, they may do what's necessary at the moment to stop the bleeding. But um, now there is an affirmative duty which creates a standard of care that if they breach now becomes something that as a practitioner we can take legal action to uh, get redress from. Beforehand, we didn't have that right to do to, to seek redress at all. They didn't have the, the the requirement to render aid to a person. They had the requirement to stop someone from, from hitting you, someone else, <laughs> but uh, uh, certainly not to, to try to save your life. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, there is uh, the the we're in the voting season, and uh, we know yes. that at these polls, you're going to have all kinds of shenanigans being pulled. Uh, so for openers, the anti-protest law for people who don't know and uh, people should uh, was yeah. uh, ruled to be unconstitutional. So this meeting, really, uh, which uh, yes, yes, it's unconstitutional. Uh, so. You know, there are people who still kind of are, 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 are sheepish uh, and shy about whether they're going to, to go out and they're going to, you know, you know, meet with one or more persons or they're, they're a little reluctant to uh, take the actions that were being taken when, George, when the George Floyd protest uh, occurred. Um, you know, there, there's, there's clearance, all right? So um, that, I think, is, uh, is something that folks need to know about because the polls are going to be defended by uh, certain parties. The polls are, um, are almost a battleground now uh, in terms of where you oh, can yeah. stand and, and who you can approach and what you can say and what you can bring. And, uh, you know, that is a deliberate... But that's not thing. new, Kevin. I mean, I, I work, mm-hmm. I've worked the election for, for years. That is, that is not a new thing. Um, there's always a, a certain amount of feet that you have to stand uh, I mean, excuse me, that you have to be behind in terms of, uh, you know, doing any kind of campaigning or, or whatnot. Uh, we had we had an issue the other day where we had, and that's something that the candidates should know. If, if they don't, they need to know. Uh, we had a candidate the other day that wanted to come in and distribute materials and everything. It was like, you know, yeah, you can do it, but you can't do it. Within 150 feet, 50 feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you you can't do it, um, and it's that. So that's not new. I mean, that's been around as, as long as I can remember, almost. Um, so uh, the the one thing that I noticed though uh, with this election, I know we have a couple of recounts that are uh, about to happen here. Um, that is, I think, it's going to be kind of dicey, too. Uh, I, I think there needs to be some sort of standard across the board in terms of, you know, if there's a close race, what the if, should there be a difference in terms of percentage, or do you do a recount, you know? And because it's interesting, some races had a recount, and some close races did not have a recount. I know one in particular that uh, was close, but they're not doing a recount, as far as I know. Well, so. what I say that you have to be uh, concerned about what's happening at the poll site. Uh, no, there, there've always been certain restrictions, mm-hmm. uh, but there, there's tweaking on the restrictions. For example, uh, the, the, the mailboxes that you, or the ballot boxes that, that used to uh, be accessible to voters. Now they're locked at a certain point. Um, you, 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 during the early voting for the, for the, uh, the primaries, uh, there was a, mm-hmm. a time frame for a person to be able to go and to deliver the ballots. And now uh, the time frame um, has been uh, strictly adhered to. The ballot boxes are locked, and they are manned by a person. There's a human being standing mm-hmm. there to make sure that, uh, that you're not stuffing the box, so to speak. That wasn't there before. It certainly wasn't there before. Uh, in some places, um, you, you, you can't give water. You can't give resources to individuals standing in line. Um, that wasn't there before. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know of any place that uh, prohibited an individual from going up to a person and giving them water. Uh, and, and some places have criminalized this. 
you know, when you're talking mm-hmm. about like an older person standing in line to vote uh, or a person who may have uh, some health issues, they may need to be approached mm-hmm. by another person to give them water or to give them a cracker or something because they're diabetic, you know, and if they can't get access to these things, then they're probably not going to vote. Um, so if that, that has a chilling effect on the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the vote. You know, I don't think people need – There's, I don't know. I, I was really can disappointed. We, can, we I don't shift think... the, can we shift sure. the, the discussion or the narrative, though, sure. that, you know, for those people who are challenged or, or face those barriers, that we need to get them prepared so that they know what to expect on voting days. Even, I mean, human nature is what it is, but does it say, like, how far in advance you need to give somebody water if you're transporting them to – you know, a, a voting precinct and or, you know, prepare them for the day with a little lunch pack. Does it have to be like 500 feet away from the precinct so that you can know that, you know, walking in or if it's a church group or it's an elderly community center group or individuals one at a time that you prepare them? And I think that's where the effort is. I'm not against um, protesting per se, but I think people need to be educated voters about the process mm-hmm. as well about the issues and the candidates. Um, and it's like know before you go uh, type deal what, you know, what to anticipate, when is the open and closing of early voting, you know, where are the drop boxes, who may be there, not to be intimidated because it's like our forefathers had to, you know, fight through civil rights to even get the right to vote. So what do you need to do to be prepared on primary or full election day? And it's like, you know, pack a lunch. Um and if you don't have one, if they're, you know, kitchens or food trucks or whatever, able to provide, you know, whether it's water or, um, you know, uh, first aid services, depending on the circumstances. And, and we shouldn't but, get to where it's like a last-minute thing like this. But I don't, I, you know, I don't know what, if we still have some of those issues. I don't know. Maybe it was different, different places. But I know we didn't have a line. There was, there was, mm-hmm. There was no line. And, in fact, um, you know, the, I think the Sunday before the primary, um, my clerk, I talked to my clerk, and, and, that, and she said that she heard that the percentage of people that were out to vote were like 11% that had voted by that Sunday before. Okay. Our, we had we ended up with three precincts, and, and I know we're running out of time. We ended up with three precincts um, at, at our location. Um, one of the precincts, nobody voted. The uh, <laughs> but, but between the three precincts, we had 141 people that came out to vote that day. Wow. Okay. All right. There's something. That's another discussion, uh, and unfortunately, we're out of time. I want to thank you both. Thank you, Nadine. Thank you, Kevin. Really appreciate you all taking the time out and sharing and, and giving your advice, and you all have a blessed weekend, and thank we'll talk so to you, much, you soon. You as thank well. You. Thanks for having me. Thank you, and thank you all for listening. Have a wonderful weekend. Be well. Be safe. Be blessed. This has been G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment, and please remember, All real power comes from God. Take care.